creative journey It's easy to get lost But don't worry, you'll lift off Sometimes you just need a creative pep talk You're listening to the Creative Pep Talk Podcast. I'm your host, Andy J. Pizza! Have you ever fallen out of love with your creative practice? Maybe that's where you're at right now. You got, you can't reach your goal and you're just not having fun anymore. Or maybe better or maybe probably worse, you reached your goal. You got your goal. You got to the top of that mountain. And you're like, this was all meaningless. <laughs> <laughs> and you're like, it's not fun anymore. Like, wh- why did I do this? Today, this is the series finale of the Creative Zero to Hero series we've been doing. And I want to pose the question, why is our practice devoid of fun and meaning these days? What is happening? Let's jump into that if that is you. And if it's not you, stick around. You never know. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll convince you that it's not fun and meaningful. That sounds, that sounds exciting. No, we're, we're gonna, it's gonna be good. Stick around, let's go. I really needed to rehaul my website. I was talking to some web people, looking around, and I got intrigued by Squarespace's new fluid engine, partially because it just sounds cool, but also because it allows you to drag and resize and layer up anything you can imagine. I dove in, rebuilt my site. It's the most me site that I've ever had. I just absolutely love it. Launched it. Got such a great response. Some industry illustration and designy peers even reached out and was like, hey, who coded this thing, man? I'm like, y'all, I did it by myself. No coding with Squarespace's new Fluid Engine. I told him like, you should go check it out. You're gonna be surprised with what you can do. And I built this thing before Squarespace reached out to sponsor the show. So I was like, boom, easy peasy. I was gonna tell you about this new site. Anyway, go check it out, anyjpizza.com if you wanna see what I did with it. If you want to try it yourself, make a site that's totally you where you can build a portfolio, sell content and courses and all kinds of other stuff, head to squarespace.com for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain with promo code PEPTALK, all one word, all uppercase. This episode is supported by In The Making, an original podcast brought to you by Adobe Express, the all-in-one content creation app included in your Creative Cloud membership. If you are trying to boost the YouTube, TikTok, Reels content side of what you're doing, one episode of In The Making that I think will be super useful to you is their episode with John Yushai. I think John's method for including his audience in the process is really inspiring. And if you want to hear about that and more about leveling up your game in the creator economy, just search In The Making in your podcast player to listen. Many thanks to In The Making and Adobe Express for their support. been doing a 
creative zero to hero kind of Hercules thing on the podcast. And it's just the idea of, we talk all the time on the show about the hero's journey. And I love the hero's journey, changed my life, this whole Joseph Campbell thing. And I think there's a lot of good things you can take as a creative from the hero's journey. But at some point I was kind of like, you know, the creative journey is its own unique thing. What are the touch points? What are the, what are the phases that a creative hero has to uniquely move through from having never picked up the instrument to writing the best song you could possibly write as, uh, as an artist? And I wanted to go through all the different pieces. So we started with number one, got to have some skill. Number two, diving into your story, make, you know, putting yourself in the work. Number three, stylizing that story, making the style match the story. And number four is having a creative space. That was one of my favorite episodes. Seems like it was one of your favorite episodes. Then we dove into psychology across two episodes. Number five was psychology. We have arrived at number six, the final stage in our journey. Are you ready to unlock and unleash your creative potential and make the best possible thing that you could ever make in your lifetime? Does that sound exciting to me as I started to kind of pick apart this? it kind of started to sound depressing to think about unlocking your creative potential if you define your creative potential as making the best possible thing that you could make. The first thing I think you've got to do to reach your creative potential to, to, to do this last step is I think we need to redefine success. As we make this podcast, we're always trying to kind of right on stage. We're working stuff out in real time. And as I got to this final episode, I realized that maybe the premise of this whole thing <laughs> was wrong. Uh, I think I stand by all the other episodes, but at this point, when we're talking about you're finally turning that creative potential into kinetic energy, you're bringing it from the potential world into the real world, I started to wonder maybe defining it as making the best possible thing you could make as creative success or the point of all this might be the complete wrong lens to approach this with. This whole time I've been telling you number six is say something. And it, we're going to riff on that. That is still kind of the nugget of where this episode came from. But I instead of I'm going to either call step six symbiosis or symbiotelic which is a word I invented, which will make sense later. But I want to ask you this question. Who for you unlocked their creative potential? Someone like Stephen King with 64 novels. You know, some of those were turned into movies. Some of those were panned by the critics. Like they're not all hits. Stephen King spent his whole life writing book after book after book. Or someone like Harper Lee, who published To Kill a Mockingbird and also, late in life, published another follow-up book to that, but some people think it was released against her will. So we'll really just say, like, one, the, the decision to publish one perfect classic book in American literature, the, the great American novel. Which of these two people, for you, unlocked their creative potential? 
And I say for you because I'm not asking you to judge them. I'm not asking you to define what what unlocking creative potential is for those people. It's no one's place to judge or say what the right thing for Harper Lee or Stephen King was to do. But I can say for myself, I can look at those two examples and I can say, which of these practices would I prefer? And so I'm diving into this process and diving into defining what creative success and and unlocking creative potential means to me. And for me, it wouldn't equal Harper Lee's path. That's, that's not what I want my relationship to creativity to be for me. And the kind of creative endeavors and, and journeys that we're talking about on the creative pep talk podcast, we're talking about not just make one classic masterwork with your life, but rather a life mastering what's classic to you as an artist. Like what's classic you like, Oh man, that's just quintessential Andy. Like that's the kind of work that I want to master throughout making and and putting stuff out there my entire life. I want to, I want to spend my entire life enjoying making work that's meaningful to me and to the people I make the work for. Now, this realization isn't a philosophical one. It's an experiential one. This realization for me came not first in my head, but firsthand in my drawing hand. As I've been making stuff over time, I've realized, you know, as I dove into this last stage of what is that sweet spot where I feel like I'm, I am, manifesting my my potential onto the page in real time what does that feel like and i realized that it wasn't making work for the mega clients reaching those pinnacles of being an illustrator is supposed to be all about that wasn't when i felt like i was doing it so to speak and and it in I thought that's what what it would be when I started out, but that's not how it ended up. Now, to illustrate this, I can tell you my story, which I will, but instead, I'll tell you the story of a medieval jester. Okay, who's ready for story time? I call it the funny woman and the king. Thou once was a, thou once, there once was a funny woman that dreamt of serving the king in his inner circle as the court jester. Making the king laugh even once would make my life complete. So she performed before his balcony in the town square, but she couldn't seem to get his attention. Day after day, she tried and tried, and over time, the funny woman started to gather a crowd. The townspeople enjoyed the funny woman's show as they were very grateful to have a small daily reprieve from their chores. The chuckles of the people became laughs and the laughs became howls until one day it was so loud that the king demanded whoever was responsible for all the commotion be brought before the throne. Well, show me what's so funny then, the king demanded without a hint of amusement. The funny woman gulped, paused, and began to perform her act. When she was finished, the king just sat there in silence. But then, yes, he cracked the slightest of smiles and exclaimed, Ha! That is quite funny. And he even followed it up with a little clap for good measure. 
Well done, my loyal servant. I deem you the funniest person in all the land. That was it. The funny woman had reached her goal. Her life's purpose was complete. But why, oh why did it feel so meaningless? Why didn't it feel like she thought it would feel? Was this whole journey meaningless, she said? But from the vantage point of her goal destination, she could now look back over her path and see that although the destination was meaningless, the journey was not. The days spent entertaining her fellow townspeople had been a blast and super meaningful too. Now, she could see that it wasn't the day serving the king in his inner circle that really counted but the life serving a purpose in the town square that really mattered. And so that's what she continued to do for the rest of her days. Okay, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, am I in the wrong room? Is this podcast okay for grownups to, to listen to? But just li- hear me out. In the last episode of this series, I want to talk about how I spent years and years trying to work with mega clients like the New York Times and Apple uh, and Lego so that I could do big work that had an impact that mattered. And it was really hard to do, and it took years, and I had to take tiny art jobs on the side in the community just to stay afloat. And eventually, I got those big job op- job, opportun- job opportunities. It's harder to say than job opportunities is what I call them. <laughs> but those job opportunities didn't give me what I thought they were going to. Now, I, I get to do those quote unquote, big, exciting jobs more frequently than I'd ever hoped that I would. And I'm extremely grateful for those job opportunities. <laughs> so, I didn't plan job opportunities. It's awful. I don't know what, uh, what it is. I get to do way more of those than I ever thought that I would. And I'm very, very grateful, but I'm grateful and I'm surprised. But the bigger surprise is that those jobs would be what helped me stay afloat while I do the fun, meaningful work of art jobs in my community. We had some friends create an ice cream shop. It started as an ice cream truck and asked me if I would do a logo and do a little brand for it. And I was more than happy to do so. Uh, but you know, I just thought, oh yeah, this is cool. I can do this and, and and knock something out and watching that small business pick up steam and become a shop. And we did a a big mural that I designed and, and Sophie helped me paint. And it's just been one of the most meaningful experiences to watch be a tiny part of a friend and their family do this incredible thing in our community. And I take very, I take almost no credit at all. I take just a little tiny, I played a tiny role in making that happen, but that tiny role is so much more meaningful than the big, huge client name that I type on my client list. One moment, you know, in one second, 
versus a week in, week out going to this ice cream shop and watching this local family friend flourish. It just, there's no comparison or making a, a label for a local brewery for a special brew that they do and watching it be something that just looks totally different than everything else in the community and, and hearing people's reactions to it, like real people, like there's nothing like it. And at the top of this show, I asked, why is our practice devoid of fun and meaning? And I'm, and I, as I dove into that question, I started thinking maybe it's because we've made art only about reaching goals. I don't think there's anything wrong with goals. We talk about them all the time on the show. They're pretty helpful in charting a path and, and giving purpose to the direction of what you're doing. They help you have clarity and know what to make. It's hard to know otherwise. They're a good springboard, really. But when we've made art only about reaching goals, we might lose sight of the fact that the real goal of making art is to have meaningful fun. Like that's the purpose. The goals aren't meaningful fun. The art is supposed to be. And in this episode, I want to redefine the first thing I think we've got to do to reach creative potential, to really manifest our creative potential out in the real world is to redefine what we mean by that. Because there are these artists that have reached the pinnacle of critical success. And yet, did they live a life making creative work that was fun and meaningful to them? None of us will ever know. None of, it's none of our places to judge, but you have to decide for yourself, what does it mean to reach your creative potential? And so the first thing you've gotta do is really look inside and say, what what do I define as unlocking creative potential? What do I define as creative success? Is my goal to have critical success, big, huge, fancy clients that I can put on my client list or achievements, or can I say an Oscar winning performer? You know, I think about Jim Carrey has this amazing um, bit at the Oscars where they announce him two time Academy Award winning Jim Carrey. And he goes out there to the mic and he's like, yes, it's me, two-time Academy Award winning Jim Carrey. And when I go to sleep at night, I'm not just any old person going to sleep at night. I'm two-time Academy Award winning Jim Carrey going to, a, going to sleep. And when I dream, I don't dream just any old dream. I dream about being three-time Academy Award winning Jim Carrey. Now, I'm not telling you not to shoot for an Academy Award, not to have goals, not to go for the New York Times, none of that stuff. Sometimes people reach those goals and they look back and be like, turn around, it ain't worth it up here. I'm not telling you to do that at all. I'm just saying that the point of the practice is to enjoy the meaning of making art. And that you can do that on the way up the mountain and on the way down. 
that you can be enjoying and experiencing meaning through every single part of the practice when you're at the top, when you're at the bottom, when you're starting over at any point. You can be reaching your creative potential. It's almost like the first five steps of this journey, we were building a hammer. And then at the end, we were like, yeah, we have a hammer. This is amazing. We have it. This, this feels very meaningless. Why? Because you're supposed to do something with it. That's the point. The point isn't to make the hammer. The point is to use the hammer. And how are you going to use your art? What are you going to do with it? How are you going to engage with it? How are you going to have fun with it before you meet the goal? After you meet the goal? Every single point in between. In this episode, we're going to talk about some practical things that you can do to get the most of your creative potential tomorrow, today, and everywhere in between. Let's do it. The second thing that I think you need to do to not reach your creative potential, but live it and breathe it every single time you show up to the easel or to the instrument of your creative activity. The second thing you need to do is let go. And let go is short for let go of the goal. Practice a sense of detachment in your creative endeavors. And I want to dive deep, and I mean deep, because we're going to go into some serious philosophy for a second. Now, I am no philosopher, and so I don't really know how to approach this argument, this idea, without just jumping in and getting messy, okay? So I'm sorry if this this isn't the right order of how to explain this, but it's, I'm doing my best. Okay. I'm a simple Indiana boy and I'm getting deep into like Aristotle and what have you. So, but this blew me away and actually became the foundation of this whole episode. I've been reading this book called 4,000 weeks by Oliver Berkman, 4,000 weeks being the average lifespan what you could on average expect to have in life is 4,000 weeks. I don't know if that sounds less or more than what you thought life was, but you have about 4,000 weeks. And the whole book is about what do you do with those weeks? And it's kind of an anti-productivity thing, which is funny because it's like how to spend your life right by not being productive. And he goes into how all these productivity things are really about how you just you know, keep your mind busy so you don't realize you're going to die, which is <laughs> pretty dark, but it's a beautiful book. You know, a lot of philosophy books, I feel like by the end, they're like, okay, we, we thought, we're like, what matters? We realized it was nothing, so don't worry about it. Not really where I land, um, so, so to speak. We're going to talk about meaning in a, in a minute, but it's a phenomenal book. It's, it's totally beautiful, and it, it just blew me away. And the, one of the things that stuck with me more than anything was this notion of atelic work or atelic activities, we'll say. 
about halfway through the book, Oliver Berkman goes into this notion of atelic activity. Atelic is a term that was coined by philosopher Kieran Setia. And atelic just means an activity is atelic if the reward of the activity is the activity. If the value of doing something is inherent in and of itself, meaning, you know, like a hike, this is Oliver Berkman's example, a hike that you go on. If it's just like a loop, you're just going on a hike. The whole point of it is the hike. It's going, it's the doing, it's the action. It's not to accomplish it. He says that if the point of the hike was to accomplish it, the fastest way to do it would be to not start because you, you end up right where you started. The point is the doing. It's the enjoyment of the activity. And it just occurred to me that this is what art is at least partially supposed to be about. I guarantee you, you started to want to be an artist because you made some art, maybe when you were just really little and you thought that was a good way to spend an hour drawing a Ninja Turtle like that. Was, I'd like to do more of that, right? I want to do more of that. And so I thought, how do I do more of that? Well, I got to get fancy clients so that I can get more clients so that I can not get more clients, but do this as often as possible because it's an atelic activity. It's an activity where the value is in the activity, not in the reward for doing it. But somewhere along the way, as you're trying to get these various accomplishments, you forget that you're, you're getting these to make it so that you can spend more time making these things, not so you can spend more time to get more accomplishments. See what I meant? We're getting really fuzzy in the backwards logic that happens when you start pulling threads philosophically. There's some really rich quotes that get to the bottom of this. He quotes philosopher John Gray, says that, nothing is more alien to the present age than idleness. How can there be play in a time in which nothing has meaning unless it leads to something else? And what he's saying is, you know, a few episodes ago in the space episode, we talked about making space for play. But in the era that we live in, play is incredibly difficult because play is an atelic activity. How do you play when every minute of your life has to be serving a goal? Every minute now has to, its purpose needs to be found in the future. So there's no value in the time that you're in. Now, atelic, just to go back to that, atelic means not telic. It means not telos. Telos being uh, the word that Aristotle used for goal. So it's not goal-oriented. There's no point in what you're doing. You know, being a father, watching my kids play, I can see that when they're really in play, it's not great because it's serving a purpose later in their life. It's great because they're spending their time in a way right now where this minute's reward is in that minute. In the book, he dives really deep into this notion. It just totally blew my mind. This notion that 
all parenting advice out there is telic advice. It's goal-oriented advice. It's the idea that the proof of the rightness or wrongness of the advice is what kind of adult it turns your child into. The advice is like, don't let your one-year-old fall asleep on your chest because it gets into a bad habit and that's going to lead later on to bad things. Never mind that the experience of letting them do so once in a while is an amazing way to spend that moment. And he says that violent video games might not be the best way for a child to spend their time not just because maybe or maybe not it turns them into a violent adult, but because it's actually a lower quality way for your child to spend their time. Now, my son is almost 10. He's playing Fortnite. He freaking loves it. We monitor it. We, he, he can only play with his friends and he, he doesn't, he's got some t- real time limits. But actually listening to him play I mean, he's having the time of his life. And I think that hour that he played Fortnite, that might have been the best way for him to spend an hour as a 10-year-old. That hour's purpose isn't just for what it's going to produce later in life. He goes on to quote philosopher Alexander Hertzen and say, because children grow up, we think a child's purpose is to grow up, but a child's purpose is to be a child. Nature does not disdain what only lives for a day. It pours the whole of itself into each moment. Life's bounty is in its flow. Later is too late. Now we're throwing a lot of references around I believe that quote is actually a quote from Tom Stoppard's play, The Coast of Utopia, where he is fictionalizing this uh, philosopher, Alexander Herzen, but it's not really the point. The point is we're, we're, we're trying to hit this from a bunch of different angles, and you might be listening and thinking, look, Andy, this isn't a philosopher's podcast. This is a creative practice podcast. What are we going to do with this stuff? And I, and, and I have a point, I have a practical point of what, how we're actually going to use this information, but I feel like it's important to kind of set the groundwork up from multiple different touch points. The purpose of an artist like a child isn't to go on and achieve things, but it's to make the art right now. And if you make your art a practice, if you make it to connect to an audience, if you make it even to earn a living, maybe it's true that it's impossible for it to be purely atelic. If you are getting paid for it, for what you're doing, you can't possibly create that work 100% just for the reward of making it because by nature, you are also making it to get paid if you've made that agreement. But what I want to suggest to you is like, how can we practice a form of detachment to the result? How can we train our brains to let go, let go of the goal? Is it possible? I think maybe it just takes a reminder of remember while you, why you wanted to make this a practice as you get started. 
I'm really inspired by Judd Apatow. You've probably heard me talk about him a million times on this show. He's a real picture in my mind of somebody who is not just reaching creative potential, but living it in a practice. And he is somebody who was under the tutelage of Zen Buddhist practicing legendary comic Gary Shandling, late Gary Shandling. And it's no wonder that Judd Apatow tries to embody this form of let go detachment. He he's said multiple times, he doesn't make movies to for the critical acclaim or the achievement. He, he makes them, and the only hope that they're good is that they're good enough so that he can make another, so that he can go on another creative hike, so to speak, because it's in the hike that is the reward. And so in this form of letting go detachment, we'll call it, this effort to continually remember that creativity at its best is a telic, is without a goal. It is the goal, the reward is within itself. I think the first thing you got to do is remind yourself that continually as you go to start that you wanted to do this so that you could do this, not so that you could, so that it could unlock something else. And I think the second piece to uh, embracing the atelic experience of creativity and therefore reaching or not just reaching, but living creativity's highest potential in you is to make sure that you're building a practice on the kinds of work that are inherently rewarding to you. And so the first step in reaching and unlocking and living that creative potential on the regular is making sure that you're heading down a path, not because you think you can be successful on that path, not because you think that goal would be sexy or you think that you can achieve it, but rather that this is the type of creativity that when you practice it, it is a reward in and of itself. And so part of this practice is, yes, reminding yourself that that's what it's supposed to be, but also making sure and reviewing, am I pursuing a creative practice that is inherently rewarding? And if not, even within the world of illustration or in the world of performance, public speaking, being on stage, there are all these different ways of practicing that. There are circumstances, you know, there are stages in which I get invited to do a talk that are not inherently rewarding. And then there are audiences and there are spaces that are. And so a part of this creative potential is about making sure that we're choosing and pursuing and practicing the types of creativity that are rewarding in and of itself. And so that piece is pursuing the atelic experience. We covered the atelic. At the start of this episode, I said, living your creative potential is about being a symbiotelic artist. I couldn't find any term that, that worked. I had to coin my own term, symbiotelic. We covered the atelic. Let's talk about the symbi. Reaching, living your creative potential is all about being 
Simbi or Simba being the kind of artist that leaves your father to be trampled by wildebeests. No, not that, not that kind of Simba. Symbiotelic, symbiosis is what we're referring to. Okay, on this show all the time, we talk about unlocking your creative potential. That's what this whole show is supposed to be about. Now, I don't believe there's any wrong definition of what your, how you define creative potential. It's subjective. It's personal to you. Harper Lee might have defined creative potential as writing the perfect book and then piecing out and be like, that's it. Okay. That, and there's nothing, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. It's your job. Like we said at the start to define what it means to you, but doing this series on unlocking your creative potential made it so that the series finale culminated in me having to define what that means for me and what I mean by it in this show. And so it ends up being this, I didn't actually intend this series to be a podcast defining series, but it ended up doing so. And so what do I mean when on Creative Pep Talk, I talk about living your creative potential. I think it's three things. I think the first is creativity is a practice. It's not an achievement. It's not a destination. It's a life. It's a journey. It's a practice. It's something you can't reach it. You just live it. And this is akin to what the war of art author, Stephen Pressfield talks about in going pro as an artist. He's like, it's not about getting paid. That's not what being a pro artist is. A pro artist is about the way that you approach the practice as a master crafts person. And we've talked about throughout the series that there is an element of creativity that is quasi random. There's a magical, accidental, everything fell into place kind of notion. But in the space episode, we talked about there is a part of that in which you can control that scientists have determined that it's an axiom of truth that if you want more of those magical creative moments, you have to just show up to the easel, to the desk, to the instrument more and more. The more times you show up, the more likely you're going to capture that lightning. And so in this show, when we're talking about reaching creative potential, we're talking about it through the lens of it's not an, a destination. It's a journey. It's a practice. It's how you embody it, how you live it in your daily creative habits. It's not about the fact that you can control every element of your creative practice, but it's the type of creativity that focuses on and maximizes the part of creative output that you can control. And so the first thing when I talk about creative potential, I'm talking about it through the lens of it's a practice. The second thing is for me and for the, what we're talking about on this show, the highest form of creativity is a telic. It's the creativity is the reward that living your creative potential means enjoying the creative process as often as humanly possible. The third thing, and this is the part that we're going to dive into here is that the highest form of creativity is mutually symbiotic between the artist and the audience. And I do think that makes this podcast a little bit unique. It's kind of, I think, controversial in the art sphere to consider your audience or to see it as part of it. For me, I think that's because it sounds like it is negating the atelic, which we all know is, is, is important. But I actually think there's a process in which you can set things up in a way that maximizes it being good for your audience 
You can then let go of that as you enjoy the experience and then edit what you do with an audience in mind that ebbs and flows this kind of brain activity. I don't think you can do both at the same time, but I think there's a way to practice in which you are doing it as a practice. You're making it as the reward in itself and you're making it something that is mutually beneficial for you as the artist, as the artist, as the artist and beneficial and exciting and meaningful to an audience. And for me, there's no higher experience of creativity than, than when I did this thing on purpose. It was a blast to do, and it meant something to people that mean something to me. Like, wah, cannot be beat. Chef's kiss. Per, like that is, those are the projects that are my absolute favorites. And, I, and I'm not saying this from a lens of authority. I am only saying this through the lens of my own experience. I can't say that's the best creativity. I can just say that's what I'm shooting for because that's my favorite. In the book, it's, there's this incredible book by Lulu Miller. It's called Why Fish Don't Exist. Lulu Miller is one of the hosts of Radiolab and, and a bunch of other great podcast work that she's done. She's also been on this show. That book is one part memoir, one part science biography, and it's all about her search for meaning, being raised by a nihilist father who is energized by the sense of meaninglessness in the universe, which some people are. It didn't energize her, and she had to go out and find meaning. And she couldn't find any cosmic meaning, but she did find that we mattered undeniably to each other. And in that way, we undeniably mattered. I think that's super beautiful and it really does something for me. It's an existentialist point of view. It says we can't know if we're meaningful in the universe, but we can make our own meaning. And so I think, yes, humans are like a hike in that they are valuable in and of itself, in and of themselves. Humans are in that way atelic. But I also believe we have an inner drive to be valuable to our community that when it's in the right place within us is a beautiful, beautiful thing. And I think it kind of poses a problem in our modern age because we have to ask ourselves, how, do, how does one matter to our community? This is about the time in the episode where I get deeply uncomfortable by <laughs> my, my imposter syndrome of who the heck is this guy? Todd grew up in Whiteland, Indiana, okay? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know, but, but I have this deep existential longing. And so I've, I've dove into some of these things, whether I'm qualified or not, and it, it has helped my creative practice. Okay, one of those people that have helped our Holocaust survivor and psychiatrist, Viktor Frankl. And he puts this conundrum of how should we live like this? The problem that with why we don't know how to matter, why we don't know how to have meaning is because number one, unlike animals, our instincts don't tell us how we should live. We don't just have an instinctual, I'll do this, 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 without ever questioning it. We also are living in a culture that is less and less grounded in religion, which means we don't have a religion. Most of us don't have a religion to tell us exactly how we should live. And even in with, within religion, there's a million opinions of what the takeaway is and how we should live. Hank Green, I saw 
commented on a tweet the other day that was blew my freaking mind. And it was a chart that said religious membership in churches, mosques, uh, and synagogues from the years 1940, almost to 2000, it dropped 4% from 74% of Americans to 70%. Not a huge drop, but slowly dropping. And then from 2000 to now, it dropped from 70% to 48%, I think it was, or 47%. Dramatic, dramatic cultural change. And so we've never lived in a world where we had less of a sense of what we should do with our lives, how we should matter based on religion. Technically, we also don't live under a totalitarian state, technically, in which the government dictates how we should live. And so most of us just resort to conformism. We decide how we will live based on how others live. Now, I think this is the worst choice. And here's where it gets juicy. This is what I'm all leading to. This is the point of this. Why is conformism, deciding how you should live, based on how other people are living is the worst choice is because it's a terrible plan because if you live like everybody else, they won't need you. They won't, you, you can't provide them value because they already have them. You're just a copy of them. Why would they need that? And so therefore you're not adding anything to their experience. You're not bringing anything to the community. And we live in a time where providing some kind of service or serving our community in a meaningful way means we have to specialize because for years and years and years and years, we have becoming more and more knowledgeable in all these vast, diverse fields. We've had to specialize what we do in order to contribute. Now, I'm not arguing jack of all trades versus, you know, master of one tiny little niche. I'm just saying generally Everybody in the town can't have the exact same skill. That's not where we're at. We're not a wolf pack. We're all more or less doing the same thing. Any wolves that are listening here, I'm not saying you're not special. I'm just saying you're not as special as humans. <laughs> I'm just kidding, wolves. <laughs> I'm saying that. I don't think there's any wolves listening, so I'll say it. You suck, wolves. Just kidding. You're very cute. And we're, we appreciate your contribution of dogs in, in the specialization of your species. What I'm saying is that humans, in order to provide value to the community, we have to specialize. And we've done this to such a degree that from one human to the next, it's almost as if not we're one species like contributing to all coming together in a wolf pack, but it's more like symbiosis of two very different species because we bring such different things to the table. If you go into the etymology of specialization, you're going to see that special and species come from the same root word of being different. And so it got me thinking of symbiosis as the perfect way to describe what it means for our experience of creativity to feel valuable is that we are providing something with our creativity to our community, to people around us that is different, that matters. You know, I was thinking about this atelic artist gone wild, like people that just fell off the side of the horse of atelism, just doing art for art's sake. 
He's 43. He lives in his mom's basement and he draws for 12 hours a day celebrities as Ninja Turtles. How does he make money? Where does he buy his food? He doesn't. He just goes upstairs and eats gushers out of his mom's pantry. This kind of creativity that is only a telic, I think it's easy for that to become a kind of parasitic form of symbiosis where, you know, I don't think it's any, I think it's great to have hobbies that are purely atelic. I have them. I'm super obsessed with music. A couple Sundays ago, I spent a whole chunk of time organizing my playlists on Spotify into folders. Every playlist is in its own folder. We got mood board. We got friends. We got playlists for each of my kids. I got, I put up all into beautiful folders, spent tons of time on it. Doesn't benefit anybody. It was glorious as an atelic experience. But if that's all I did, if I became obsessed with that to the point of neglecting my children, that would become a form of parasitic symbiosis, meaning it's just good for me, but it actually hurts other people. A hobby that is that benefits you and nobody else is a great hobby, and I massively believe that they are uh, a part of living a great life. But I think the highest form of creativity is the type of symbiosis in which they call mutualism. Mutualism is where it's the clownfish and the sea anemone, where the clownfish and the anemone are both benefiting in a massive way. The clownfish being the artist, the anemone being, I've said anemone many times nearly perfectly, I'm very, very proud of myself, uh, is the audience. And they both benefit. The artist is having a great time doing the atelic work. And the thing that they happen to produce through that period of time blesses and benefits the audience. And the audience loving and enjoying the work actually then benefits the artist because it gives them a sense of meaning. Now, I think it's just as easy, maybe easier to fall off the horse on the side of trying to matter to an audience. But I think if you can find that sliver in the middle, that is it. That is what we're trying to do. Now, for me, I'm not saying, like I said, this isn't the rule. This isn't a fact. This is just my experience. The Creative endeavors that have held these things in tension have been the best creative experiences of my life. And they have felt like living my creative potential. The ice cream brand, the, the brewery work, even stuff for kids books really feels like this. You know, for me, I felt like I really had the experience of making kids books stretched out so that I had to embody the atelism of making a kid's book before I got any sense of the symbiosis of making kid's books because we launched my first like proper classic kind of kid's book. That's a, a storybook was a pizza with everything on it. And we launched it. We published it at right in the thick of the pandemic, which meant we could not do any live readings. And after it was all said and done, it was, you know, we were all pushing for this big, huge release date. We released it and it just felt like any other day of the week. And I had to internally process how I felt about that. If that's the way it felt to release a kid's book, did I want to make kid's books? And essentially I, I landed on, yes, it was hard to do this, 
but the work was rewarding in and of itself. I loved producing that book. It wasn't until much later that that book just over time gained steam and became some kids' favorite books and their parents posted on, uh, on Instagram their kids quoting the book and, make, and you know, dressing up like the character and all these other pieces. That element of the symbiotic nature of creativity didn't show up till way later. And so I got to really separate them out and experience them separately. And it ended in feeling like this symbiotelic experience that was worthy of spending my creative energy on possibly over a lifetime. When I was just getting started, I remember hearing one of my favorite artists, Aaron Draplin, who's a designer, talk about this in his talks where he would you know, talk about making work for friends and how it was the most important work to him. And, and I thought, okay, yeah, this fits the kind of cultural narrative of what it's like to be a good person. Like it sounds really nice, but I didn't fully, it's not that I didn't buy it. I just didn't, it didn't make total sense to me. And I remember thinking, yeah, I'm sure the Nike job and the Obama job had to be more exciting than branding your buddy's hot dog cart. But then having experienced some of that, I realized like, yes, it is maybe more exciting for like five seconds, but the branding of your buddy's hot dog stand that makes him look as legit as his hot dogs are, that meaning can last like a whole lifetime. And so the final stage, what does it look like to reach and live your creative potential? I had to coin a term to say what I feel like it looks like. It's a symbiotelic experience. It is making art as a practice on purpose that is enjoyable, that is atelic in its pursuit. And then once you're done, massively benefits other people that matter to you. And if you will line up your target for that little sliver in the Venn diagram, I believe that you can live your creative potential right now, whether you're still learning a skill, unpacking your story, stylizing it, setting up your space, diving into the psychology. That type of creative potential can be experienced from step one. And that is a very beautiful, very encouraging thing. don't want to leave you without some call to adventure, putting this stuff to practice. Here's what I encourage you to do. Think about it's a, it's a thought experiment, but you can do it too. When you figure out like the atelic work, what is this, the work, the creative work that you do that is a reward in and of itself that also can serve a purpose and serve a community and matter to other people and make a difference in other people's lives. Can you come up with some kind of pro bono projects that achieve both of these? Now, this is partially just to experience it, but it's also meant to act as development of your creative practice and potentially even portfolio work. You know, there are things I've, there are creative projects I've done for people in my community or, or friends 
that fit these two boxes that I did for cheap or bartering or, or even for free at times as a means to experience, get some experience and to create some portfolio work. And I think even just the idea of coming up with what that could be can be a powerful experience. Just recently, as I'm working through this episode, yes, I've done this a million times in illustration, but I've also, uh, I also decided to apply this to the work we do on this podcast. And I started thinking about how could I do something that I have fun doing that also benefits people around me. And I came up with the notion of doing the nerdiest thing ever, which is creating a customer audience journey, um, f marketing funnel. <laughs> well, that It's kind of what we do in the class three of the social media class we did for Skillshare. And I did this for an artist friend of mine and a friend of mine who has a small business. And I just did it kind of as a creative project that was fun for me to do because I like all this stuff and I like coming up with interesting solutions on how to make something profitable uh, as well as something that was helpful um, that might be helpful, you never know. And I sent it to them out of the blue and they were both extremely enthusiastic and I think touched by just spending some time doing something for somebody else. And there's just, w without any reward, without any reason, it's just one of the most meaningful ways to spend my time. And it made me think, I would love to make that kind of thing a bigger part of my practice. And I started to see all the ways that I could do that. And so it can be a powerful exercise. So come up with something. What could you do that would be atelic and, and symbiotic, symbiotelic for people in your real life and, and do it. shout out to musician Jamie Drake who we had on the show a while back I know that episode meant a lot to lots of audience members just a heads up Jamie has some new music out she sent it to me it is gorgeous exactly what you would expect and even some interesting new turns the new single should be out right now go check it out on Spotify the album is going to be out later this year thanks for giving me the heads up Jamie Massive thanks to Yoni Wolf and the band Y for our jingle and soundtrack. Huge thanks to Connor Jones from Pending Beautiful for editing this show so beautifully and with so much pizzazz. Huge thanks to Katie Chandler, Ryan Appleton, and Sophie Miller, my wife, for content assistance every single week. Extra shout out to Ryan for highlighting... Um, the wolf bit on this episode that we we uh, added to a little bit um, based on his suggestion. He said, as I was telling him, he's like, it sounds like you're talking to wolves, like you're afraid you're gonna, going to offend a wolf. And uh, that got me to, um, <laughs> to work on that a little bit more. Um, so massive shout out to you, Ryan, for the wolf bit. Shout out to all you people who are listening every week. And until we speak again, stay pepped up. <laughs>